Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings of inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I'm your co-host, Rob Hadley, a people and culture strategist specializing in DE&I and people analytics. My co-host is Nadia Butt, an organizational development and belonging strategist. On today's special episode, we'll feature conversations on inclusion from the world of consumer products. Today's show will feature some of the best of highlights from our conversations with Nisha Dearborn of the skincare company Fresh Chemistry, with Pai Mabasiam of REI's Path Ahead Ventures, and with Clarice Owens, founder and CTO of the sustainable seafood company, Healthy Oceans Seafood. For those of you that have been with us from the very beginning, and thank you to all six of you who turned into us that first season, one of the highlights of season one for me was the opportunity to interview my friend and former business school classmate, Nisha Dearborn, the CEO of Fresh Chemistry, a company that makes the freshest possible skincare products for women. The episode did turn uh, somewhat into an open product endorsement as Nadia and I spent a little too much time asking Nisha for skincare tips, but there were some super valuable moments that I still think about. Here's a segment where, after Nisha has described the aging process of my face perfectly, Nisha goes into her product development process and how she thought about marketing and the choices she made or had to make when advertising her product and her advice to aspiring entrepreneurs. Those are the first signs that you start to see your skin, how it changes. So one of the first things women see, sometimes people see it in their 20s, sometimes 30s, sometimes you can be blessed to be like Nadia and like not see uh, it in your 40s you're yet. Too kind. I got these 11 <laughs> right here. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the first signs people see is you start to lose a bit of that um, brightness that you used to have as mm. a kid. You start to see a little dullness. You start to see a little change in um, texture. And then you start to see a little bit of the fine lines and, and it goes from there. And so that's why I made these two products to really target those two areas. Did you, um, when you were testing with groups of people, were you looking at like specific races, ages, gender, like what were you looking for? And then what was like the feedback process like for you? I recruited women in certain age groups, uh, certain psychographics, meaning what was their approach to skincare? Mm -hmm. What did they use today? What do they, uh, what was their um, kind of shelfy is what the industry calls it you know like what is their bathroom shelf look like today oh interesting and the reason was because this product you know you to understand what it's about to understand that the ingredients need to be better and you should be using things like this i wanted to make sure these were people who are kind of skincare involved if you will sure already part of the kind of category and understood a little bit so 
I recruited for age and psychology, if you will, or psychographics that way. Um, I did not recruit for race specifically. It's just, you know, who I got was who I got. And yeah. And so then the feedback I was asking for was all, all of the things, you know, is it easy to put together? What, did, what's the effect on your face? Things like that. Very cool. You may not have looked at race, you know, as you were building the product, but now as you message and, and go out and market the product, how do you think about, you know, you have to have models, you have to have, uh, you know, you, you have to do photo shoots uh, with, you know, with the effect on the product. And so how do you think about that? I know, you know, you're very involved in that process since you're a solo founder. Tell me what that's like. Uh, the way I think about it is you want to communicate to people that this is for them. So you have to represent people that when a, someone sees it says, hey, that that looks like if it works for them, it could work for me. And that it's tough because as a solo entrepreneur, you can't hire like six models. I mean, it's not cheap, mm. right? These it is, especially in a global pandemic yeah. where you need to keep everybody spaced to take <laughs> the pictures and they can't all just be, you know, grouped together in one shot. Right. Um, so wow. it is expensive. And so you have to make choices. I made choices. It would be much easier to just pick one person, but there are challenges there, right? Whoever you pick, if they're a minority, uh, I think research shows that a lot of people will maybe look at that and think, well, that's not for me. Like the people in the majority may not think that's for them if the only picture out there is, is a, a minority. You, it's easier to pick someone of the majority and hope it brings everyone else along. But I didn't want to just do that. I mean, I think um, we've all seen there's enough of that in the world and we need to, again, you know, be the change you want to see. And so I put the cost out there or put the, you know, added the cost to the budget to make sure that we had people of different skin tones um, to make sure that people were represented. But that was a um, philosophical choice, not a financial one. Nisha, I'm always available to model and I'm, I'm happy to try the product. I'm going to, I'm actually already on the website. So um happy to model. Anytime. Amazing. Thank you. I, <laughs> I will, I will take you up on that. You can, you can Instagram film yeah, yourself oh, yeah. just, as you're I just learned TikTok. I could do a whole TikTok series for you. I will make your TikTok. <laughs> yeah. You go ahead. Yeah. Bro. What is the, what, what's the, uh, what, what, what's been the biggest challenge in terms of just bringing the product to life? Like, you know, for, from all the things that you've had to work on, was it that timing issue of, of launching your, your product uh, at the beginning of the uh, pandemic? Do you think ultimately you'll look back and say that's, that was a positive thing? What's been the you know biggest hurdle overall in building the product and building the brand? It's a good question. I think the biggest hurdle is that I am one person, right? And so any one person, I mean, I think I'm fortunate where the skill sets that I bring to this job um, are very relevant because I've run businesses before. I've been in new product development before. I understand skincare. So there's a lot as an entrepreneur that I know about this that most entrepreneurs don't know you know, about necessarily what they're jumping into. So I was fortunate in that way. But at the same time, there's so many elements to figuring out the algorithm. You yeah. know, the, the world is now an algorithm. And the right. algorithm keeps changing. And, you know, the privacy rules keep changing. And the, you know, so there's a lot of things that need to be figured out. Retail, right? So you can reach out to retailers, try to get in front of them. But you know what happened to retail in the past two years? Like there's, they're no longer what they used to be. And so- I think just with the changing pace of the world between how you sell your product and maybe Rob, to your point, this is one of the things that is 
um, pandemic based because a lot of things did really shift, especially with retail and the pandemic. But I think as one person, you essentially need a team to be focused on these things, to be experts and to figure these things out. The issue with having a team is funding. And so you kind of need money to mm. build the team. Right. I'm self-funding the business so far. Sure. So sure. I'm entirely self-funding it. So, you know, if you think about what people deserve to get paid for jobs like that, like that's not coming out of my, you know, I don't have a lot of those pockets to just shell out salaries. So, you know, I think the biggest challenge is how, you know, everyone would tell an entrepreneur, keep as much equity as you can for as long as you can, you know, raise money when you, when you need to. Um, but you, in order to raise money, you need to show success and to show success, you need people to, to help you get that success. So it's mm -hmm. just, it's a tough cycle of showing success with, um, funding that you can access. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Would you seek, uh, outside funding and what are the markers that you're looking at to, to, to make that decision? Yeah, I think. What I'm doing in 2022, I'm actually very excited. I have some distinct um, plans of how I am essentially turning up my own funding in certain areas to prove out some key milestones. Um, and then with those milestones, going to seek outside funding, showing that, hey, look, we've, we've gotten it to these key points, um, help fuel the growth even further. I think um, I might do a friends and family type round to help get to those key milestones. Um, but it's, it's a challenge, right? Because, uh, you want to hold on to as much as you can. Um, but you also don't want to suffocate the business. So I think in 2022, there'll probably be a friends and family round, um, trying to keep it small, but also, you know, that trying to figure out like, weren't we always taught you're not supposed to take money from your friends or your family? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's literally a round so for friends and family, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so, but I think I will be doing a friends and family and then um, seeking outside investment in 2023. Very cool. Awesome. Awesome. We've had tons of traction and, uh, and you've been a fantastic guest here. Uh, let's, let's, let's go to our final couple of questions. Nadia, did you have a couple yeah, uh, questions absolutely. for Nisha? So, yeah. So Nisha, we like to ask everyone this. Um, what diversity, equity, and inclusion advice would you give um, to an entrepreneur who's entering in the startup space today? Sure. So I think it depends if they are someone who may be a minority in the startup space, whether they be a racial minority or they're female. I would say that now is the time. Definitely go do the startup mm. because. What I think as a minority, what people, we all know that you have to hustle, you have to work hard, you have to, you know, continue the grind. But what we all want is an opportunity to be treated and evaluated based on our capabilities, mm -hmm. right? We, we want to say, we want the door to be a little open and we want to be able to show up and show you what we're capable of. And now the doors are open, right? So I think entrepreneurship tends to be, I think, much more of a flat playing field than maybe corporations that have, you know, different histories behind them. When you're out there and you're just making calls or you're, you know, meeting people, I find the entrepreneurial space to be, you know, much more open, much more inclusive. So I would encourage anyone who may be thinking about starting um, something who's in one of those groups to just go for it. That's all. I would say if That's I were talking to someone 
who might be in the majority, you know, maybe they are a, a white male and they are doing a startup. I think that I would advise, you know, most of the funding still today goes to people in, you know, from venture capital, et cetera, goes to people who are white male, white men. I think that is changing, but that's still what's happening today. Mm -hmm. So I think as if you're in that group with much power comes responsibility, right? So as you are potentially getting that funding, how do you think about making sure your efforts are inclusive in who you're hiring, who you're bringing along, the vendors that you're hiring, the agencies that you're hiring? How do you make sure that you are keeping your efforts to be inclusive because you are the one who can bring a lot of that along with you? We'll be right back with more tales of inclusion from the world of consumer products. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome back to Inclusive Collective. Next, we feature a pair of our friends from our most recent season. First, Payam Abbasiam leads RAI's Path Ahead Ventures. Yes, that's RAI, the big outdoor retailer that, living in Utah, I spend entirely too much money with. At REI, Payam leads a team that is dedicated to making strategic investments that support the company's business goals and impact objectives, and there he plays an instrumental role in advancing diversity and representation in the outdoor industry. In this segment, Payam talks about Pathhead Ventures, the lessons they learned about supporting founders, and about how important it is for a huge player like REI to lead an industry toward greater inclusivity. So you and your team lead this great work, the REI co-ops um, path. Ahead Ventures, which offers full spectrum support to startups owned and led by Black, Indigenous, Latina, and Asian American um, Pacific Islander people. Can you tell us more about the program and why REI felt this was something that they had to do? Yeah, thank you. So really, Path Ahead Ventures is the result of months of discussions with hundreds of founders, investors, and industry community leaders to understand the current challenges and really identify opportunities where REI can bring unique value to founders. And so what we did is launch this initiative that's to invest three, $30 million in 300 founders of color as they start and scale their businesses in the outdoor industry. And so through Path Ahead Ventures, what we're trying to do is leveraging our network internally and externally, our capabilities and our community to partner with Black, Indigenous, Latino, Latina, Latinx founders, and Asian American Pacific Islander entrepreneurs to build their businesses faster. Sure. And so for us as founders of color, as they succeed, the industry becomes stronger, it becomes more inclusive and really welcoming to all people. I love that. 
just to follow, because I'm so curious, like, do you have an understanding of like what types of challenges these entrepreneurs were facing to get kind of in this industry? So I'll paint the picture of what it looks like today in the venture capital industry, and then I'll go a little bit into the challenges they're facing. And so, you know, less than 2% of roughly the 31 billion that's held by 200 of the biggest early stage funds is allocated to startups with diverse Mm -hmm. leaders. Looking at it from another angle, in the half a trillion dollar outdoor industry, only about a percent of those retail brands are owned or led by people of color. And so what this really means is that DEI funds, underrepresented minorities, and women are still grossly underfunded. And it's not meaningfully improving. And so really systemic change needs to occur. Now, the challenges that these founders face in their journeys are really vast. So it's from disparities and access to things like family and friends capital, to facing unconscious biases in the fundraising process, the founders really confront the effects of racial disparities at every step. And so the startup world broadly has a major opportunity to move the needle on these disparities that really keep these businesses, founders, and investors from reaching their full potential. And when we look at and focus our attention on the outdoors specifically, it's really fitting that you know, America's most famous wilderness guide, Sacagawea, was a woman of color, or that among the early Yosemite park rangers, it was a cavalry of black soldiers. Mm. But it's also really tragic that throughout American history, ethnic minorities have often been underrepresented, intentionally excluded from the outdoors. Mm. And so the issue isn't really for us that people of color in America don't care about nature or environmental issues. Mm-hmm. It's more that the outdoor industry hasn't historically been an ally. Mm. And so changing this pattern really begins with dialogue. It's followed by lowering barriers to entry, increasing access, and creating this atmosphere that allows beginners to familiarize themselves and feel comfortable with outdoor recreation. Um, It's not an overnight process, but it's really something that has a clear path forward and can be achieved. Yeah, Payam, talk about that clear path forward, or I mean, you've been at this for a little bit. What are some of the things tactically that you've learned or things that uh, either success stories or things that have surprised you about this uh, this journey that you're on and what's worked so far and what uh, would you need to improve going forward? You know, it's interesting. We're still learning every single day. Um, This is the greatest learning curve of my career so far, but it's one that's deeply impactful and it's a lot of fun. And so in our first year of investing, 2022, um, we had a lot of success. Um, We made 11 investments across various sectors from apparel to consumer tech and cycle to ready to eat meals. I think back to one of our early investments, which we haven't made public yet, so I can't reveal its identity. Uh, but that's fair. They were in a really, yeah, the challenge. <laughs> they were in a really precarious position. Mm-hmm. Um, their lead investor had recently pulled out of its commitment and left the company holding the bag. And that's a tough position to be in as a founder. So when you have obligations to your team, to your customers, and to yourself as a founder, It's like, what do I do? And so despite this vote of confidence, I think in most situations, nine out of 10, the other investors, if the lead pulls out, everyone else kind of topples as well. We didn't do that. We reinforced our full support. Our involvement actually ultimately helped the founder oversubscribe its round. And today they're crushing it. 
And what we've noticed is that really for systemic change, the systemic change I refer to, for this to occur, it can occur in the silo. Mm. It requires partnership and it requires teamwork. Mm. Candidly, I didn't know the temperature when I joined REI. The big question was, is REI on an island by itself? Mm. And what I've learned since is really encouraging. Overall, the outdoor industry is ready to step up. We're not the first company to meaningfully address underrepresentation, but Path Ahead Ventures is definitely a catalyst to this more broad and more significant advancement. It really sometimes takes that one person or company in this case to draw a line in the sand and say, starting right now, we're going to do things differently. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what we've done. The, the response has been overwhelming. Mm -hmm. uh, people, companies, retailers, organizations, they've reached out from all over to work with us. And we're truly grateful. Uh, but the show's just getting started because the real stars are the founders. That was Payam Abbasiam of REI's Path Ahead Ventures. And our next highlight comes from one of the founders Payam was talking about, Clarice Owens founder of Healthy Ocean Seafood Company, joined us earlier this year. Her first podcast interview, by the way, and we're very proud of that, that she made us her first. Clarice blew us away explaining some of the complexity in the global seafood market and really made the connection between DEI and sustainability. Here, Clarice talks about the, some would say, surprising support she has received from Big Food and the drivers of her decision to be vertically integrated. It's, it's very easy to say that Big Food is the enemy. But then when you look at how they enculturate progress and actually invest in mm. progress, then I, what I see is like, you, you, you certainly can't um, argue that big food hasn't done a lot of environmental damage, um, mm -hmm. but that mm -hmm. there's a learning process to that. And if you sure. change 1% of big food, you might change all that. That probably accounts for the entire landscape for the insurgent brands that are trying to disrupt big food. So we've never really, and, and, and it's the same in fisheries, like pre-competitive collaborations that happen between the world's largest tuna traders and vessel owners and et cetera. These people have the ability it, through small shifts in the way that they're sourcing fish to um, and impact massive changes and fisheries and ocean health. And so we've never been of the mind that um, strategics are the enemy or fish, fishing companies are the enemy. And like I said, they've been also some of our first investors and mm -hmm. have also, while they don't want us printing their name in the newspaper, they've remained quiet when we've been pretty activist in our communications mm -hmm. and, you know, calling out dirty when we see it. And, you know, I've, I've been surprised at how quietly supportive some of these individuals have been and you know um there's this there's this film called fish and men that talks about some of the issues that i've highlighted namely our dependence on foreign seafood supply chains and not just the environmental impacts that it's having and the social impacts in foreign geographies with slavery but in our own geographies like american fishermen are a dying resource they're a dying species they can't feed their families Oftentimes they're mm. under attack by NGOs and et cetera. Right. Like we saw what just happened in the main lobster fishery, which by every measure is a sustainable heritage fishery who has done more investing mm. in and having mm. a long-term sustainable supply of, of lobster than any government or any 
NGO or any other individual. What was interesting is that there's been a stability of, if anything, um, there's been an enhancement of effort from, from fishermen to reduce their impacts, especially on northern right whales, which is kind of the environmental issue that everyone has focus on right now on the eastern seaboard. What we've seen is that fishermen being aware of that risk have invested heavily in a number of different mitigations, like increasing the number of pots, but basically reducing the number of lines that are in the water by reducing the number of pots or putting multiple pots on one line. Um, some of the environmental investors are investing in like ropeless gear. We're seeing a lot of adoption of mitigation strategies in that fishery. And as a result, and they even will like color their rope so that if a, if a whale will get entangled, then they'll know this happened in this part of the ocean. These fishermen were responsible for it. We need to mitigate this risk in this way. And so as a result of that, we know when these whales are being found with the probability of them being associated with the, the lobster fishery is. And what we've seen is that it's, it's pretty low. In fact, they've never mm. attributed a death of a whale to the main lobster fishery. Mm. And yet there's been this, you know, we don't know, is it activism or is it attacking mm. people's human rights? Like to a right to work, a right mm. to your cultural heritage. For me, I started out as like, oh gosh, this is a delicious product that I wanted to bring to market. And now I'm seeing like yeah. all of these issues that are just disturbing um, that are around yeah. fisheries. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you, you, just that story, you bring up so many complex issues. There's a complex adaptive system, right? When you talk about food and seafood, and uh, you know, to be specific, um, it's also a brutal industry from you know from a commercialization standpoint, right? Like margins are margins are thin. Um, and so you know, there's a lot to be won and lost. And, and so, you know, you talk about, I mean, I'm curious about your journey as well and some of the things that, that you've run up against. Um, and, you know, is it because, does it come from the fact that you want to be vertical, vertically integrated because of the fact that you touch every point on the supply chain uh, yourself or, or in an effort to be disruptive? What are some of the things that you found from, you know, is is that what it's attributed to that model that you have um, that has has led to some of these more insidious things that you've been uh, part of or, or subjected to? Yeah, that's a great question, and I don't want to say like you know all fishing is created equal. It's not. There are massive mm -hmm. trawlers. Some of the things that you saw in Seaspiracy are true. Um, mm -hmm. Just recently, the Mexican dolphin fishery, which had bore a sustainability standard which to me is just blue washing. They were chasing down dolphins to, um, oh. to harvest yellowfin tuna, which, you know, if you ask any American, they don't agree with that. And most of the environmental organizations didn't agree with the certification of that fishery. Fortunately, it lost its certification, but that those types of activities are still happening, happening in our oceans and pushing them to the brink. That being said, like when you look at... Um, the FAO does a report called SOFIA where they evaluate how much of the fish that we're consuming on an annual basis comes from sustainable sources. What we're seeing is that even though a lot of fisheries are at what they call a maximum sustainable yield, they are still sustainable sources of seafood. So if we increase 
uh, regulation, if we increase um, cross-border collaboration through regional fisheries management organizations, there are really cool um, organizations that are actually now tracking vessels that are turning off their signal so that they can't be spotted by enforcement um, agencies. And so there are all of these different things that we can do that can increase the total amount of sustainable fish, even though it's like 82%, we have further to go for sure. But for us, um, the factors that we saw here in the U.S. market, to us, it's like in the 70s, the U.S. fisheries were overfished. Um, we had those our first signals that we saw of our oceans collapsing uh, under fishing pressure. And so there were a number of different things that happened to correct the narrative and correct the paradigm there. And it started with regulation in the form of the Magnuson-Stevens Act. Um, and then, it, you know, early and impactful private family NGOs like the Monterey Bay Aquarium invested. And so all of these different factors came together to really transition our fisheries to being responsible. And so as of today, if you read NOAA's report, 98% of fish caught in the U.S. is sustainable. And so for me, it's like this is the perfect paradigm to prove that if nations like Indonesia or nations like Peru or, you know, Thailand invest in sustainable mm. fisheries, then they will see a market benefit as a result of those investments. And what mm -hmm. we're seeing is the opposite. These fishermen have largely borne the responsibility and the cost of making these investments only to put themselves mm. out of business and only to yeah. see our market source from other parts of the world who are less invested in sustainable fisheries. So for us, mm. we're like, if we can't prove this works here, it's not going to work anywhere. Um, and so for it was a necessity. We, we won't pack in thailand or, or wherever we were sure we we, we want to invest in our community uh, we wanted mm -hmm. to do it with, through a co-packer we couldn't no co-packer could do it for us um and so we started building up the supply chain every from vessels that are landing literally we we, we know the names and of our captains who source our fish right in la like they land the fish in la and it comes up to santa cruz and we process it um, and we also wanted to establish a mass premium positioning. So the right form, function, and fit to reach a unique audience, because it's my perspective that incremental changes in products can't drive the kind of change that is globally needed in, in the seafood market. So you saw like brands like Wild Planet come to fruition in like 2005. And those guys just... God bless them. They did an exceptional job of proving new markets and that consumers would pay a premium for responsibly caught fish. Um, and so a mm -hmm. little bit more expensive, um, higher, I think higher quality. It's a single cook, so you get a lot more omega-3s in the can. But if you look at the, um, the, the, they usually plot like volume, total volume of units sold and then dollar value. And if you look at that over time, from the time that Wild Planet entered the market, what you see is that the volumes decreased, but the total dollar value of the industry stayed the same. So it was a, it's roughly $2.7 billion oh. category. And that's like, that's an incredible story for our oceans. Less fish out of the water, more responsible supply chains. 
and you know responsible producers who can trace their fish back to whether that be a fishery in the Maldives or in the Solomon Islands, the Poland line caught, just wonderful story. But since about 2015, what we've seen is a leveling off. They've gone as far as they can. Um, and now mm-hmm. we're just seeing an influx of a, a number of new brands that are now cannibalizing market share, um, which is, mm. I mean, don't get me wrong. That's a business plan. Um, it's not the one we're engaged in. We really need, saw a need to shift out of that um, over, um, how do I say, oversubscribed too much private equity money in the space to where people are just clawing their faces off, trying to, you know, force their right. way on a, a crowded shelf that really just, just doesn't even need that. You're not adding much value to the marketplace. So we were like, okay, well, right. and beyond that, we have a price premium. So we have to yeah. be in the, you know, in the middle of the price for our set. And for us, it was like, oh, it's meat snacks. People will pay $4 an ounce for meat snack. Yeah. You. Oh, absolutely. And they're, they're delicious. delicious. <laughs> We'll be right back after a quick break. Stay with us here on Inclusive Collective. Thanks again so much to our guests highlighted today for joining us, Nisha Dearborn of Fresh Chemistry. You can find Nisha's products at freshchemistry.com. And if you've ever wondered how Nadia stays looking so youthful, I think it's the Glow Getter Serum that she uh, that she uses. Check that out. Pyamabasium of RIA's Path Ahead Ventures. And Clarice Owens of the Healthy Ocean Seafood Company. You can find Clarice's line of pescivorous seafood jerky, which is alarmingly good, I must say, at Target stores or online at pescivorousseafood.com. And thanks, of course, to my co-host, Nadia Butt. Inclusive Collective is a production of Refillion Media. We'd love to hear from you. So send us your feedback at inclusivecollective at refillion.com. You can find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcast. Tell your friends. It's summer. No one wants to read a book. Tell your friends about this podcast. I'm sure they'll love you for it. We'll be back next week with more Inclusive Collective. Take care, everyone. <laughs>